Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Andre, and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast, a podcast about tennis and essentially me just speaking about tennis from uh, the perspective of a, of a regular spectator that cannot just travel around the world, but watches through the internet and follows matches and scores and stats like this. So you can say that I'm basically an enthusiast, just like talking about tennis and my opinions and all biases and stuff like that. Today... I was scheduled to, I had scheduled to play, uh, to play, to, I wish I was playing tennis today, but no, um, social distancing everyone, um, but in any case, I was scheduled to have a podcast about the Wimbledon history, so the history of, uh, uh, the oldest tournament in the world, I don't know if it's, like, the oldest, oldest, but at least the oldest that is still, um, active, that, Players can still come in and, and play, obviously, like the professional ones. But the problem is that, like, as I showed in my uh, Facebook page, uh, I have a video, a little video explaining um, that the book that I was using to um, get my information from is, is just too long and there's, like, way too much information in it. And I want to be fully prepared to do the history instead of just kind of thro- throwing in some uh, random facts and statistics. But uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not fully ready. So what I'm going to do today is uh, I'm still going to talk about Wimbledon. And the reason why I'm talking about it is because they just canceled, and uh, the Wimbledon cancellation is the first since the Second World War. Um, and during the World Wars, there was no Wimbledon, so they canceled uh, in both of those uh, times. Yeah, because of the crisis of the the, the COVID nineteen and stuff like that, and quarantining and big agglomerations not being recommended, uh, they just decided it was best to postpone it to next year, aka canceling it. Um, and therefore, I'm just kind of like making this a uh, little bit of like a, a special, it was supposed to be two weeks, but now it's going to be three weeks. And what better to, I guess, now is actually kind of works works well, I guess, because um, uh, I'm going to talk about a match that I really enjoyed watching and lots of people did enjoy watching as well, which is the Federer and Nadal Wimbledon final of 2008, which is regarded as the best match ever, ever played in tennis. And I don't necessarily, I don't like to compare eras and stuff like that, but obviously it's probably incredibly entertaining in consideration to the the context that we live in today. Um, Matches from, I don't know, 1900s, if they um, broadcasted the earliest, they could have broadcasted, broadcasted the earliest ones from the first decade of Wimbledon, it probably wouldn't, has, wouldn't have been as entertaining as this one was. But leveling all the techniques and how the game has evolved, um, I don't necessarily think it's comparable to say uh, that this is the best match. But it was one of the best matches ever, for sure. Uh, it's 
all of, all of the things involved in it, all the drama, all the uh, context between Rafael Nadal and Federer. Not that, was anything, not that there was anything bad, but it was just the rivalry that they were involved in is um, is just um, it kind of culminates in Wimbledon. It was probably the best match that they've that the two ever played that um, alongside with uh, Rome two thousand and six. But the Wimbledon 2008 just had more more into it, just kind of like more context around it. Yeah, let's, with no further ado, I'm just going to start talking about some facts and stuff about it. So, oh, and just by the way, you can actually watch the extended highlights and the full match on the Wimbledon YouTube channel, which is incredible. The full match is, uh, the video is about six hours long, but... There might be some black at the end because in the the highlights were the video is 31 minutes long, but there is a solid five minutes of nothing happening, and you essentially just get like the most um, the most important moments of the match. I would say like the crucial points and the end of the second set and the two tie breaks and the last. I don't even think it's the last game, but but just the last point of the match, which is quite incredible to watch. So, well, the first thing that is most insane about this match is just how much, how many delays have gone into it and how just how late it ended. Back in 2008, they didn't have uh, the retractable roof, so there was no lights on court. So the match was supposed to be held at daytime, and it was for the most part, but it ended in just a lot of darkness. And if you ever played um, tennis, especially... Uh, for most parts, like you, you don't even you don't want, you don't really want to do things in the dark normally, but for tennis, uh, I think especially uh, because it's just such as low, um, not such as low, such as small ball, and uh, it's so precise, and you have to be so focused. That's why people must keep silent in the uh, stands. It's very nearly impossible to see the ball and to time it properly. It's really hard to move and, and hit it, but. They played it, and when uh, you when you see the the video, uh, you can see in the highlights. Uh, you don't have to watch the whole match to see it. But like when you when they zoom into the stands and look at the when they film when they're filming Rafa Nadal's box as he win as he wins, um, you can actually see that the quality of the image is lower than the rest of the video because it was so dark that they had to sacrifice the image quality so that the image could have something to show otherwise it was just going to be complete darkness if you know anything about uh, photography and videography essentially they had to lower not to lower they had to make the iso really high and that means that the image had a lot of uh, noise and grain into it so yeah so i cannot even when they when you see the the pictures for when nadal won they're in essential complete darkness it's it's insane there's it's just absolutely insane how they played that match to the end and at the, at the level that they actually did. Oh yeah, let's go into the context of the match of the rivalry of that year. First of all, um, Nadal had has most wins over Federer. So he's uh, 24 to, to 16, um, had to head. And in that year, he hadn't lost to Federer until that final. And he didn't lose to Federer in that final as well. So they played three finals that year all of them on clay and Nadal totally dismantled Federer in the Roland Garros final 6-1 6-3 6-love 
and that's not necessarily uncommon for an adult to tr to trash people in the final. But um, Federer was just essentially his morale was completely down because he hadn't won much against Nadal in his entire career at that point. And Nadal that year he was just on fire. But yeah, so coming into that final, it was kind of uh, it could have been a redeeming moment for Federer, and he it was it was essentially his court because he was um, he had won five straight Wimbledon's uh, back in, at that time. He was defending champion of five straight years. He started winning in 2003 until 2007. He had beaten Nadal twice in a row in 2006 and 2007. And the 2007 final was also a five-set match, which I actually ended up watching entirely. Uh, not in 2007, but later on. And Nadal lost in the, in the fifth set, 6-2. So it was a pretty comprehensive victory um, for Federer. It kind of like stayed a little bit more dominance on the grass court. But Nadal is like really just kind of pushing and pushing and it was getting closer and closer. So it was five set and the previous year, 2006, was four sets. He lost two for, in four sets to Federer. I think I watched that match as well, but I, I'm not entirely sure. But at least the highlights, I totally did watch that. Yeah, so that year was the year that Nadal became number one for the first time. Um, and he ended a 237 week streak from Federer being number one so that's like four years and a bit straight being number one that's a, an all-time record I think the second place doesn't come near it is not even half of that time so it just goes to show how how just unbelievably dominant Roger Federer was at that time and that was like the beginning of the Nadal as we know him today because he was essentially just a big winner on clay court. He had won 2008. He had won like three Roland Garros at that time. So he was a three-time Grand Slam champion only only in Roland Garros, and he hadn't really done much outside of of that. Now a couple of things that I wanted to talk about this match was just a few of the um, points about it as well. Um, so I mentioned that there was a, they played until dark. At the until the end of it was like completely dark not completely because when it's completely dark they have to postpone the match but they really pushed it uh they don't have they don't normally do this like the it come becomes kind of like at the discretion of the tournament director whether they postpone the match or not but they they just didn't do with that one they let it roll until very late and the other things that happened to it was they actually had rain delays and the, there was just gusts of wind all over. Federer was completely erratic in the beginning of the match, was missing forehands. If you if you look at the highlights, they started off in the second set. You can see how uh, Federer's serve and uh, forehand was, were completely, essentially non-existent. They were pretty, pretty bad. And uh, because of the history book that I have about Wimbledon, they actually do mention this, this match. Obviously, they wouldn't just let his light. And um, they mentioned that Federer was essentially a completely different player. And it was not because he was playing just badly the entire tournament. He actually lost no sets until the final. And Nadal had just lost one. So it goes to show the dominance of both on tour on top of other players. So even though we say that Federer was dominant and Nadal was not as good on grass, he, didn't he did only lose one set until he reached that final. So, yeah, so it's just a Federer and Nadal are just too good and Federer is too good on grass and Nadal is, is better than everybody else, but not just probably not better than Federer. Um, 
And the head-to-head in Wimbledon for Nadal and Federer, by the way, is uh, 3-1, led by Federer. So that win was Nadal's one and only win over Federer in, a, in, in the grounds of Wimbledon. So I think the only grass court win as well, because essentially Nadal only plays either London Queen's Club or no match before Wimbledon and Wimbledon. And Federer never plays in London. He only plays in Halle in uh, Germany. So after the first and second set, the third and fourth, I think that's where the drama really just starts because Federer really just picks up his game at that point and he leads to the uh, to the two tie breaks that were pretty iconic, especially the, uh, the one in the fourth set. The, the third set tie break, Federer essentially dominated. He won at 7-5. Um, not necessarily straightforward, but he, he dealt with his own serve really well and Nadal just really didn't have much of a chance. <clears throat> in the fourth set, that's probably where the most um, quality of the match was, essentially. Not that the fifth set wasn't as good, but um, the most iconic shots were in the uh, fourth set because Federer came down from a 5-2 um, deficit against Nadal, so Nadal was leading 5-2. And um, at a point, he was leading 5-4 on serve. So he was serving two points to win the match. Uh, but he lost both of them. So And the first one was a, was a double fault. So I'm just going to read... Because uh, <laughs> in the book, that he actually kind of describes it really interestingly. Um, he kind of like narrates it in, a, in more of a like a romanticized way in a sense. He just kind of like puts uh, some emotions and stuff like that, like some cool words in it. So I'm going to start reading and it's uh, John Barrett's The History of Wimbledon, The Official History, um, the edition of 2013. So he doesn't have Murray winning. <laughs> the tennis in the fourth set is exceptional with both men conjuring magic from their rackets. There have been no breaks as they move to 6-6 six to six, Six all and face the Russian roulette of another tiebreak. Leading 5-2, Nadal is within two points of the title. The tension around the court is palpable. Everyone is holding their breath and crossing fingers, but the Spaniard falters. A double fault and a missed backhand throw Federer a lifeline. Suddenly the champion is at set point, but his forehand just misses its mark. Now Nadal is running like a hare for a, wi- for a wide forehand and flailing a pass down the line. That was a beautiful shot. If you watch it in the highlights, you can... I watched it like at least three times in a row because it's it's fantastic. It is in. Match point. As Federer serves, Nadal pounces on his return and smites a mighty cross-court forehand winner for victory. But wait a minute. What is this? Federer has conjured a backhand flick of, of, off his toes down the line and into the corner. A miraculous shot. So what happens there is like Nadal serves out wide to Federer's backhand. You can totally always foresee this. Nadal was always going to do this against Federer, especially on pressure points. Um, and Federer returned to his lice. I landed about on the um, on the service line, and Nadal shot like a, his his forehand. He he hit a forehand cross court to Federer's backhand, and it was very much out wide, as in like he, he hit the lines. And Federer was completely out of position. He had he not played the passing shot that he played off of his backhand, Nadal would have volleyed for the win. So the the forehand, the, not the forehand, but the backhand passing shot was also a beautiful shot. Especially if you consider that Federer's backhand, especially at that time, wasn't the best. 
um, and especially against Nadal's forehand because of all the spinning and the fact that um, Federer's record was extremely small, especially for um, for the time. Um, he changed. He switched to a bigger a bigger racket head, but at the time it was 90 square inches, I believe, which is really really small. So back to this. This is what he writes. They are level again. Pandemonium. The exuberant spectators are cheering for both men. Plays held up for a full minute and a half, which they cut in the highlights. Uh, two points later, the improbables, as improbable as it seems, it's two sets all. Again, the thunderous applause echoes around the stands. Nadal looks def- deflated. How will he ever recover his poise after the disappointment of seeing certain victories snatched from his grasp? He, we would soon find out. Um, so the match remained level until 7-all, and Nadal broke. Um, Federer netted a couple of uh, forehands and uh, ha- hit a couple of forehands out wide. And which allowed Nadal to um, to break, and it could have been because it was too dark, and maybe Nadal had a little bit of the advantage because Federer shots a little flatter than Nadal's, and Nadal just kind of like was could have could have hit a little bit with a little bit more spin just to clear off the net, but um, Federer didn't have that advantage, I guess, and or maybe not, maybe it was just that um, Federer was uh, nervous as well. Another thing that I find was really interesting in the and the highlights that I I didn't remember actually when I watched this match in 2008 was that Nadal in the in the se- in the second tiebreak in the fourth set so he was so nervous um, you can actually see how how terribly nervous he was when he hit that um, the double fault he he was just on the brink of victory against Roger Federer on Wimbledon so a thing that he couldn't manage in the two previous attempts that he tried. Um, and he was just about to do it, but he couldn't do it. So he had to really recollect himself and hold on to his serve and look for opportunities in the th- in the fifth set, which actually really uh, says a lot about Nadal's fighting spirit. He is really um, well. It does say both about like both of them, um, Federer, because he came down from two sets to love uh, playing terribly and won two tie breaks, bringing a match point down, and Nadal because he had to. He couldn't deal with his nerves uh, the first time, but the second time he was able to to pull it off and unfortunately misses from Roger Federer actually gave Nadal the advantage. But it doesn't mean that Nadal is playing badly. He actually um, he, he nailed the fact that he was he remained completely um, focused in the match and playing a lot of his best tennis in that fifth set too. So... A really cool thing about watching the highlights and watch this match, and it, I think it really shows about like the importance and how great that match was, is that um, when I watched the highlights and when I'm gonna watch, I'm gonna watch over the match because I just found out that they have it full <clears throat> on the Wimbledon channel on YouTube. Is that it, it, it? I still feel the tension, and I still feel like they're playing right now. It's kind of every every point is is important and it's almost like I'm watching it live again like all the f- the feelings from when I was watching this match uh, they come back to me and even if uh, I know that Federer is going to miss that forehand or that Federer is going to actually hit that passing shot and that was going to hit that passing shot and whatever it still feels incredibly tense and when they do it is is it's pretty it's pretty insane like I really Really think that this match, this match was just filled with uh, emotions and drama, and 
by by that in the tennis plate as well even though the tennis was not the greatest like in terms of uh they were not 100% at their at their best but they were trying really hard and they were making crazy shots out of out of nowhere the tiebreak was essentially the proof of that so that for me means that this match is as a classic for forever and i think we're so lucky that we have it like on tape that it's online it's it's out there and you can just rewatch it like whenever you want so just to finalize i guess i have uh, just a couple more uh, stats about the matches one is that Federer had 13 break points but only broke once i don't know exactly when he broke it and actually i don't actually remember that but it it could have been probably in the um i just second or a third set because the fourth set there were no breaks this was the longest final um in time ever played until last year's final when Federer lost to Djokovic it's unfortunate that Federer is kind of caught into those longest matches but he's the loser at the end he did win the longest match in games played I don't know if it's still hold because of last year's but um when he won against Andy Roddick in 2009 that was the longest match ever in terms of games played. So, yeah. Oh, also last year's final was um the first Wimbledon final that they played uh, with a tiebreak in the last set at 12 all. So, they don't play a tiebreak like in Australia or in uh or in the US where at 6 all they play a tiebreak, but they play a tiebreak at at 12 all, which I think is really interesting. Let's see if that holds. It kind of keeps a little bit of the um, the fifth set thing going where the there's no more tie breaks, but at the end, at the end, it's kind of oh no, but there is a tie break. You know what I mean? It's kind of like there is actually a tie break, but it, it feels like there is no tie break because it's they're essentially playing um, two sets condensed in one. Another interesting fact about Roger Federer, as I said, he lost three finals on clay. Um, two of them were on Masters 1000, and um, another one was at Roland Garros. But at the end of the year he actually managed to win the U.S. Open, which was his biggest title at that point. And um, he he defeated Murray in the final. Murray hadn't beaten Nadal in the semifinals of that year, so imagine it could have had a Federer-Nadal U.S. Open final in 2008. Who knows what would have um, that been. But unfortunately, he wasn't, and Murray was left wanting for another four years until he won in 2012. But this podcast is about Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, um, and their final at Wimbledon. So, but yeah, that year was essentially disappointing for Federer in terms of titles and just performance. He lost number one to Nadal. He lost two Grand Slam finals to Nadal. He lost tons of finals and matches to Nadal. And the well, for for Federer's standards, winning just the U.S. Open. Um, two 500 ATP 500 tournaments and one 250 tournament are pretty pretty lame and Nadal's uh, 2008 was his first um, great season but I think it, the best season that he's had to this day was 2013 although 2018 was also really good but yeah this is this is probably the best match that Nadal and Federer have ever played Although you can say that to uh, a couple more finals that they've played in the past and the level when they always bring to the court is always amazing and is always 
it's always very cool to see to see them coming into into the onto the court to play against each other we always know that it's going to have some really interesting shots sometimes it's not the greatest match because they're just human as well so they might not be at their best they might be a little bit injured but it's always very exciting to see them play and uh, I think as tennis fans we we should cherish those those matches because that's one of the greatest rivalries of all time if not the greatest one but uh, we don't know how for how long uh, we're gonna have those matches and we don't even know if they're gonna meet again at any other match especially this year they're probably not gonna meet again at all because uh, let's face it let's I don't, we don't even know if there's, there's going to be any tennis this year still, although I'm hoping for a, at least an August-September comeback. So yeah, just a couple final thoughts, as I mentioned, about the 2008 uh, Wimbledon final between Roger Federer and Rafa, uh, and Rafa Nadal. I do recommend you to go watch the highlights, and if you have time, to watch the whole match on YouTube as well. Uh, they, have the, they have all of that in the Wimbledon... Uh, YouTube channel and you can probably see you can definitely see more uh, other great matches as well that were played there and um, yeah uh, another thing that you can do if you don't have just six hours to give on the whole day I know it's like a fourth of your day to to give to like essentially sitting down and watching a video you can just kind of watch um, a couple games and then stop and then like you pick it up uh, the next day that's how I watched the 2012 Australian Open final because I didn't watch it at the time because it's in Australia and it's 3 a.m. here when they start the match. So actually, not, yeah, when they start the match, it's 3 a.m. here. So uh, I normally don't watch those finals. And when I did watch, it was a little bit disappointing. So I just kind of prefer to get my sleep. So yeah, I kind of like rushed a little bit in making this podcast, but I hope it was okay. Um, and I'll prepare my best to give you the Wimbledon history part one and part two um, next Wednesday and next Wednesday part one and the one after two weeks from now will be part two um, divided in pre-open era Wimbledon so it's foundations to early champions and all of the um, developments that went into Wimbledon and its importance in the tennis history and the open era which um, is about uh, professional tournaments and not professional tournaments but professional players and all of the great champions that we know and love from the 70s to this day and I'm gonna have to complete a little bit of the history with my own research because as I said the the book finishes in 2013 um, actually 2012 is the last year covered by the book because that's when it was released in 2013 and up until then we have had um, seven more years of tennis and Andy Murray won and Djokovic won again against Federer and Federer broke the Pete Sampras record with uh, eight, Wimbledon's title, eight Wimbledon titles and Nadal had won again only in 2010 which is covered in the book but um, he didn't win Wimbledon since so yeah and as I said he only won one match against Roger Federer so, yeah, again, I hope you liked this episode. It was a little bit rushed. I'm sorry again. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 